amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Last night, parts one and two of our TV docuseries finally made their way to the airwaves. The Forgotten West Memphis 3 aired last night on the Oxygen Network. Now, if you're listening to this episode on the morning it drops, you'll be halfway through the series. Hopefully, you're enjoying what you've seen so far. Unfortunately, some of you are not able to watch the show. I've received a lot of messages from disappointed international listeners that don't have access to the Oxygen Network. If you're one of those people, I'm hoping that soon you'll get the opportunity to watch. But for the time being, you'll be able to stay informed as I spend the next four episodes of the podcast breaking down the four parts of the TV series. And not only will you get a really good idea of what you missed, you're also going to get a lot of behind-the-scenes info that didn't make the final cut. So there'll be plenty of info in here for those of you that have and those of you that haven't seen the series. So... This episode will hopefully be informational and entertaining, whether you've seen the TV show or not. And with that being said, after a short break, I'll begin our inside look into the making of The Forgotten West Memphis 3, Part 1. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before I get to the breakdown of part one, I thought first I'd share with you all the story of how a Southwest Michigan fire chief came to host a TV series. So it all started back in 2015. I started the Truth and Justice podcast in May of that year. At that point, it was known as the Serial Dynasty. The whole idea of the podcast was that people would email me with questions, comments, and theories about the case we were working. Pretty much the same model that we still have today. So, in the fall of that year, I started getting emails from some guy named John. John was a particularly sharp listener and had a lot of great thoughts on the case. Now, I should tell you right up front that I'm really not that much into pop culture, so forgive me here. I mean, I couldn't tell you the names of most actors on TV. It's just not my thing. Which is why it didn't ring any bells for me when my new friend John would sign his emails with his full name, John Cryer. John Cryer. 
Now, I had no idea who John Cryer was. My wife had to explain to me that I was chatting with Ducky from Pretty in Pink, or Alan Harper from Two and a Half Men. Turns out, I'm a big fan of John's, I just didn't know his name. So, I played it cool and maybe slipped in a I'm a big fan into one of our emails for good measure, and it wasn't long after that when my new friend Ducky asked me if I had time to hop on a phone call with him. I still remember that phone call to this day. I was sitting in the parking lot of Lowe's, picking up some solder to fix a copper pipe that had broken in my basement. John, after flattering me with compliments about how great my podcast is, told me that he thinks we could accomplish more if we take truth and justice to a larger audience. A TV audience. Holy shit. Ducky. Alan Harper. The guy that's worked alongside with Charlie Sheen and Ashton Kutcher and dated to me more before Ashton did, wants to make a TV show with me, little old Bob from Michigan. Needless to say, I was beside myself. But I played it cool. No, I, I really, I actually did. I told him that I'd have to think about it, and I really meant it. See, I'm married and I have four kids. I can't just pick up and move to Hollywood to make a TV show. I have other responsibilities. To be honest, I was really torn about the whole thing. By this point, there had been other producers who had reached out to me asking me to make shows with them, and I'd turned them all down. I really just wasn't interested in being on TV to begin with. But John, John was different. He wasn't just some guy trying to make a buck. John actually listened to the podcast, he participated in the investigations, and he actually cared about what we were doing. He didn't want to make the show to plump up his bank account. He's got that two and a half men money. A little unscripted series like this wouldn't exactly be life-changing for him. He called me because he genuinely wants to make a legitimate impact on criminal justice reform. And he saw Truth and Justice as the perfect vehicle to get the job done. Which is why I accepted when John invited me to fly out to L.A. to meet with some executives from Warner Brothers to talk about the possibility of making the show. My first day in L.A. was amusing, to say the least. I come from a very small town in Michigan, and I wasn't really prepared for what Hollywood had to offer. To begin with, I got off the plane, and I was greeted by a man in a suit holding up a sign with my name on it, just like you see on TV. I immediately convinced myself that I am now a celebrity, but the driver wasn't really impressed with me or my fame at all. But nonetheless, he gathered my luggage and drove me to a rental car place. This, by the way, was the first and last time I've ever driven in L.A. The traffic was absolutely insane, and I was white-knuckled the entire time I was on the road. After this trip, it was Ubers for me. But as soon as I got into my rental on that trip, I called Jim Clementi. He and I had worked together quite a bit at this point, and I figured I would see if he wanted to get together while I was in town. Jim gave me his address and told me to head on over to his house. And this was when I realized that L.A., is huge. See, my hotel was in Burbank, and Jim lived at the time in L.A. proper. At just about any time of day, that's about an hour drive. When I arrived at Jim's house, he seemed to be having some sort of party in his basement. This is when I met Laura Richards and Lisa Zambetti. For those of you who are unaware, Laura and Lisa are Jim's co-hosts on Real Crime Profile, the podcast that was born before my very eyes that afternoon. 
I just happened to fly into L.A. on the afternoon that Jim, Laura, and Lisa were discussing the idea of creating a podcast. So I got to sit in on that meeting and participate. We all shared some pizza together while we brainstormed the format and title of the show. I suggested The Real Criminal Minds, and then Jim informed me that that would be a sure way to get sued by CBS, and they landed on Real Crime Profile. And then I got to watch history being made. I sat outside the recording booth with Lisa's husband, Paul, while the trio that you've all grown to love recorded episode one of Real Crime Profile. After that recording, I headed up to Burbank to my hotel. The Hotel Amarano is located just a stone's throw away from the Warner Brothers Studios, which also happened to be where John's office was located at the time. John and his wife Lisa had started their own production company called Discount Sushi. And in 2016, they had a contract with Warner Brothers, which was why their office was located on the lot. But that's neither here nor there. Once I arrived at the hotel, that's when the craziness really began. So John texted me and asked me if I wanted to go to dinner. Yep, that's right. Ducky invited me to go get sushi. Go figure. Obviously, I accepted, and John told me to meet him out in front of the hotel in about 10 minutes. I hopped on the elevator, and as the door slid open, there stood, in the flesh, Kato fucking Kalen. That's right. OJ's buddy was staying in my hotel. I walked by, playing it cool, and started texting my wife as I was walking out the front door that I had just seen frickin' Kato Kalen. By this time, it was dark, but as I exited the building, I heard a very familiar voice. It was Ducky. Now, because it was dark, I could only see John's silhouette. He was talking to some tall guy over by his car, which, surprisingly, was a Chevy Volt. John's fame clearly has not gone to his head. He keeps things very conservative. Now, when he saw me approaching, he yelled, Bob, what's up, man? And Now, let me pause here for just a second. At this point, I had never met any celebrity ever in my life. So it's taking everything in me to play it cool as I met my colleague, John, for the first time. I approach him, trying to act like I don't want his autograph, and he gives me a big old hug. And then he introduces me to his buddy, Ryan, that he'd been chatting with when I walked up. I turned to the tall man and reached out to shake his hand when I realized Ryan was Ryan Stiles. From Two and a Half Men, The Drew Carey Show, Whose Line Is It Anyway, and lots of other stuff. Sweet baby Jesus, I've been at my hotel for five minutes, and I brushed shoulders with Kato Kalin, hugged John Cryer, and shook hands with Ryan frickin' Styles. Now, I was prepared to meet John, and therefore didn't come across like a complete idiot. Ryan, on the other hand, did not see that one coming, which is why when he said to me, Hey, Bob, nice to meet you, I replied with, Hey, TV, I, I, what's up? I'll move this along. You, You have to forgive me. These were some pretty great stories that I've been dying to tell all of you since 2016 and couldn't. I promise we're gonna get to part one of the TV series shortly. But I think this behind the scenes stuff is almost as interesting as the show itself. So anyway, I had sushi with John that night. The next day, we went to meet with the execs from Warner Brothers. John pitched a show ID to them. They asked me some questions. I must have replied with the right answers because they said they wanted to make the show. Now, that sounds like a reason to celebrate. 
But I learned that day that that was just step one to making the show. There were a lot of steps left to go. At this point, I had Discount Sushi as producers and Warner Brothers as their studio. It's January of 2016, and I was sure that we would have a show on the air in a month or so. Obviously, that's not how things work. Basically, Warner Brothers had agreed to fund the operation. At that point, our plan was to make the show about our Season 2 case. So the next thing on the agenda was to go to Texas and film me working on Ed's case to create what they call in the business a sizzle reel. It's basically a trailer, except to show networks when you pitch your show to them. Rather than trying to convince an audience to watch your show like you're doing with a trailer, with a sizzle you're trying to convince a TV network to buy the show and make it so that you later can watch a trailer and hopefully the show. So, for those of you who listened to Season 2, and if you haven't, you should, remember that little weird anomaly when I interviewed Leonard Mosley in his front yard and you could hear some whispering in the background? which was weird because I was out there all alone. Well, this is why. For those of you that remember that and wanted to know who the creepy whisper was, it was Allison Clayton, Ed Aids' attorney. She was inside of the SUV watching and listening to me talk to Leonard through a headset. We were filming the sizzle reel when all that went down, and Allison was mic'd up inside the car while I was outside. What you heard was when I asked Leonard to write down his phone number... Allison exclaimed, shit, he's right-handed. Anyway, we spent a week shooting the sizzle, which consisted of me doing my normal work and also doing things like walking up and down a train track 46 times trying to look heroic. And by this point, we had brought in Herzog and Company as a production partner. You might be familiar with their work. They produced all of the Decade series on CNN. So Herzog edited together the sizzle, and then I flew back out to L.A. to pitch the show to networks. This is a not-so-fun process where you drive all over town in traffic to meeting after meeting to sit in a tiny little room with emotionless executives who hear dozens of these pitches a week, and you try to convince them to buy your show instead of the others. The only thing funny about these meetings was the time John pulled up to the valet in front of HBO, and they proceeded to tell him to park over by the other Ubers, You know, because he drives a Chevy Volt and not a Tesla like everyone else in Hollywood. John eventually had to explain to the valet that he's John fucking Cryer and he's here for a meeting. The pitches that trip went well, but we got a lot of soft passes. Kind of like, we really like it, but... and fill in the blank reason. Oxygen was actually one of those. They actually loved the concept, but they were convinced that these cases drag on for too long. We were told by Oxygen that it could be decades before anything actually happens in Ed's case, so there's just no good ending there. So, you can imagine how excited I was to walk back into that same office 18 months later with a new pitch and a cute little story about how Ed H. was about to walk out of prison a free man, which could have been the ending to their series. Needless to say... We had their attention. So this is how things played out. My contract with Warner Brothers was for one year. After no one bought the show during our first round of pitches, the contract expired. So I was in New Orleans with my wife at a Beachbody summit when John called me up. He explained that the contract was over and I was free to work with any of the other producers that had been contacting me if that's what I wanted to do. This is another memory that's burned into my mind. 
I remember stepping out of the session that was going on. We were inside of the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. I stepped out to talk to John. I was leaning against a trash can in the main entryway when I told him that I have no desire to be on TV. Never did. I wasn't going to work with another producer. What I wanted to do was to take this project as far as we could take it together. All joking and celebrity aside, John Cryer is a wonderful human being. If you met him on the street, you would never know how wealthy or successful he is. He's extremely humble and he's dedicated to making a difference in the world. And that's why I told him on that phone call, quote, I'm either making the show with you or I'm not making it. I'm not doing this because I want to be on TV. I'm doing this because I want to make a difference. John's reply to that was, well, all right, let's regroup and get it done. Then it was later on that same phone call that I suggested that we bring in Jim Clementi and his production company, XG Productions. In a place like Hollywood, it's hard to know who you can trust. John and Jim were the only two that I knew I could count on, and I knew they had my back. And I also knew I wanted us all on the same team. So I called Jim as soon as I got off the phone with John, and it didn't take much convincing. Jim was in. At that time, I was beginning my investigation into the West Memphis 3 case. A few conference calls later, and we decided that this could be an opportunity to finally find justice for Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. So, then comes another sizzle and another round of pitches. Things seemed to go well, but I wasn't holding my breath. A few weeks later, I was in Nashville speaking about the West Memphis 3 case at CrimeCon. And shortly after my presentation... Corey Abrams, the executive from Oxygen that had now heard two of my pitches, came up to my booth. She apparently had been watching me speak and wanted to drop by in person to let me know that Oxygen was in the process of sending an offer over to us for the forgotten West Memphis 3. And the rest, for now, is history. At least until next week. I think I've bored you enough with my stories for one episode. So now, after a short break... We'll get into my breakdown of the Forgotten West Memphis 3, Part 1, The Victims. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Part one begins with a heart wrenching scene with Pam Hicks. Pam was Stevie Branch's mother. She is a large part of the motivation that's driving this investigation. There have definitely been a lot of people out there who say, why this case? 
the West Memphis Three has been covered over and over again. But all I had to do was look into Pam's eyes to see the hurt, to see her tortured soul. And when she asked me to please find out who killed her son, it was a request that will haunt me until the day I die. We see quite a bit of Pam in part one, and that wasn't by accident. There were two reasons that we put such a focus on her. Number one is because we wanted the audience to understand that this nightmare didn't end for the families of those boys in August of 2011 when the West Memphis Three walked free. The fanfare was over, but they were left with more questions than answers, and they're still hurting. The other reason why we see so much of Pam is because after I spent a day with her, I wanted all of you to see what I was seeing. Pam has gotten kind of a bad rap over the last 27 years. Everyone remembers the scenes from Paradise Lost when she was dancing around with Stevie's scarf. She looked crazy, and the truth is, she was crazy. Pam's daughter Amanda once told me that on May 5th, 1993, she didn't just lose her brother, she lost her mother too. Pam was never the same after Stevie was murdered. What you didn't see on the show was the three hours that it took for Pam to let her guard down. Over the years, anyone who has followed this case closely knows about Pam's issues with substance abuse and her troubles with the law. She's a broken woman. And sadly, there are a lot of people out there that refuse to give her any sort of grace. She's mocked and ridiculed on social media. It's like it's never occurred to these people what it might do to them psychologically if their eight-year-old child was brutally murdered. Not to mention the fact that at one point, she was convinced that Stevie's killers had been convicted. Then, new evidence suggested that maybe they didn't actually do it, and then later new evidence even suggested that her husband at the time might have actually murdered her son. It's insane to think that anyone could live through that and just carry on with business as usual. And I'm almost ashamed to admit that I just about gave up on Pam myself. The day our crew arrived to interview Pam, she was, I don't know any other way to put it, than she was off her rocker. I spent about an hour sitting at a table with her trying to get her to talk to me about Stevie. And her responses were all over the place, sometimes even incoherent. At one point, my showrunner, Domini, sat in to talk to Pam. They had developed a bit of a relationship, and we hoped that Domini could get her to open up, but no dice there either. Pam is a woman who has been forced to develop walls to protect herself. She numbs herself by self-medicating, and she avoids the pain of losing her son by dancing around the topic when asked about it. She doesn't want to think about it. So after a few hours, I was really on the verge of just pulling the plug. It was seeming like Pam was not going to let her guard down, and we were not going to get a glimpse of the real person inside of her. Which is terrible, because it was very important for me for people to see her for who she really is. A grieving mother, not some character on the internet. So I gave it one last shot. The crew put fresh batteries in the cameras, and the entire team was outside of the house watching and listening on monitors as I sat back down with Pam. After a few minutes of conversation... And to be honest, I can't remember the question that caused her to let her real emotions out. But when she let it go, Pamela Hicks sucked the life out of that room. (laughs) 
Suddenly, I wasn't looking at that character I'd seen in the documentaries anymore. I wasn't looking at a social media account. I was staring into the eyes of a mother. A mother who lost her baby in the most horrific way imaginable. A woman who so desperately wants the truth, but has grown afraid to even hope for it. That was the real Pam Hicks. And this is the woman that the world needs to see. We see her, 26 years later, enraged that her son was murdered. Enraged that she still doesn't have any justice. Even enraged that the video of her collapsing when she found out Stevie was gone has been seen by the whole world. She's just broken. And when she told me that she was tired, she just doesn't want to cry anymore. I was completely overcome with emotions. Tears were streaming down my face when I got up to walk outside. And when I got out there, the entire crew that had been listening and watching on the monitors were all in tears. Every single one of them. Pam asked me to find out who murdered her son. And that's exactly what I intend to do. Pam isn't the only family member of the victims that has asked for our help. The second person that we hear from in part one is someone who has never been interviewed before. And that's Christopher Byers' brother, Ryan Clark. Ryan has declined every offer to be interviewed since his brother was murdered. About a year before we started shooting the TV show, when I was just investigating the case as I normally would, I drove out to Ryan's house looking for him. And we eventually ended up meeting at an ATV shop in Memphis. He was having some work done to one of his dune buggies. I ended up spending the whole day with him. No cameras, no microphones, no interview. I just wanted him to tell me about his brother. And he just wanted to get a better idea of who I was and what I was about. Ryan's a guy who's always on the move. The conversation never stopped, but it moved. We chatted at the shop. We chatted while taking his dune buggy for a test ride. We chatted while picking up his wife and daughter and then dropping them off at school. Then at one point, he asked me to hop in his truck because he wanted to show me something. He drove me out to the cemetery, to Christopher's grave. For those of you who have watched Paradise Lost, you'll remember the scene with John Mark Byers and Melissa Byers at Chris's grave. The cringy pandering to the camera by Mark, the insincerity as he was reciting a script for the cameras. Well, my trip to that same place with Ryan was the exact opposite of that. Genuine and real. That trip to the cemetery was a moment that I'll never forget. Still to this day, I feel honored that he trusted me to share that experience with him. That's also the reason that his statement on the TV show meant so much to me. As you saw at the end of his interview, Ryan told me that if I could somehow unlock the mystery of who killed Christopher, that I would be his brother. After hearing from the family members, next we brought in the first of our new team of experts, Dr. Rebecca Shue. 
Dr. Xu is a forensic pathologist, and we hired her to evaluate all of the medical evidence in the case. Her assessment of the injuries on the boys was very clear. All of the visible injuries to the boys' bodies, the cuts on their faces, the gouges on their thighs, and even the emasculation of Chris Byers, were all post-mortem injuries. Now, the reason we chose Dr. Xu is because she was not familiar with the case at all, so she didn't have any preconceived opinions on the evidence. And as a neutral third party and an expert in her field, she determined that everything except for the head injuries were all post-mortem wounds inflicted by animals. She said that the head wounds were probably caused by a blunt object, not a knife or a cutting tool, and that those injuries were the only ones that might have occurred before the boys died. But she was very clear that the actual cause of death for all three boys was drowning. All three of them were alive when they went under the water. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After Dr. Xu, I moved on to our next expert, retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi. I wanted Jim to take a close look at the crime scene and answer a few questions for me. Are there indicators on this scene that suggest that some type of ritual was performed? And what type of offender should we be looking for? The answer to my first question was simple. Neither Jim or Dr. Xu see any indicators on this scene of any kind of ritual, satanic or otherwise. Dr. Shu noted that the emasculation of Chris Byers only happened to him. Had that been a part of some kind of ritual, we would have seen the same thing done on all three boys. And Jim notes the use of the boys' shoelaces to bind them. He says that this was not a thought-out or planned ritual. It's quite the contrary. The use of the shoelaces to him indicates that this murder was the result of an impulse. It wasn't planned. And that's why the killer was forced to use only the materials that he had in front of him as the bindings. That's the type of information that Jim is later going to use to develop a profile. But we're not there yet in this first meeting. At this point in his consultation, he makes a couple of suggestions. Number one, based on his experience working in the FBI, he believes, just like Dr. Shu, that the visible injuries on the boys are what he calls post-mortem artifacts. See, during his FBI years, he was part of a predation study where animal activity on dead bodies was studied. He says that what he sees on the autopsy photos looks exactly like what he has seen before in the predation study. 
And secondly, Jim suggests that we use a newer technology called MVAC to try to retrieve DNA from inside of the knots of the bindings that were tied onto the boys. Jim doesn't mess around. He wants evidence. And he sees MVAC as a possible way to get it. So at the end of this meeting, I left to go get more information about both the MVAC and about turtles and post-mortem predation. In the next scene, you finally get to see some of the footage that I recorded a couple of years ago when Mike Shane and I did the chicken and pig testing at the bayou. For those of you that don't remember, I wanted to see if there were turtles present at the crime scene, and I wanted to find out how they would react to flesh in the water. That experiment had one purpose. What I wanted to know is, is it even possible to put flesh into that water and not have turtles feed on it? So, in the show, you get to see a highlight reel of some of the turtles feeding from our 2018 footage. And then I head over to Arkansas State University to interview a herpetologist. Dr. Lori Newman-Lee studies turtles in the Arkansas area for a living. At this point, I've had a forensic pathologist and an FBI profiler both tell me that they believe that the visible injuries on the boys' bodies were caused by animals after they had passed away. That, combined with my own experiments, really should be enough to be certain. But considering this is one of the most hotly debated areas of the case, I needed to know for sure. So during my interview with Dr. Newman Lee, you get to see me trying to look real tough when I pick up a tiny little turtle. It then looked like, I'll quote Mike here, a baby back little bitch when Lori put an alligator snapping turtle on the table in front of me. At the end of the day, Dr. Newman Lee convinced me. 100% the crime scene where the boys' bodies were found is prime turtle territory. And after she looked at the injuries, she stated very clearly that all of those, especially Chris Byers' emasculation, were all consistent with turtles feeding. Anyone that wants to continue to argue this point is free to take that argument somewhere else. Based on my experiments and Dr. Newman Lee's experience and knowledge, that body of water is and would have been thick with turtles. Turtles feed on carrion or flesh. And May is prime feeding time for those turtles. And my experiments proved that it is actually impossible for any flesh to be present in that water for more than an hour without being fed upon by those turtles. But the problem is, that is a massive blow to the West Memphis Three or guilty crowd. That's why they make such pathetic excuses to argue the science. Because all they have to hang their hats on is Jesse Miss Kelly's confession. And Jesse described a bunch of injuries to those boys that never actually happened. They were all inflicted by animals hours after the boys were deceased and the killer was gone. There was one set of injuries that Dr. Newman Lee could not attribute to turtle feeding, and those were the head injuries. The same injuries that Dr. Shu said are the only wounds that look like they could have occurred before the drowning. So, what we're left with at the end of part one is probably the clearest picture of the crime scene to date. There's a question that often gets asked anytime I suggest that the boys were murdered by a lone offender. 
How could one person control three boys? The answer seems apparent now. A blow to the head from a grown man is more than enough to incapacitate any eight-year-old, even if they weren't knocked unconscious. Hopefully you're enjoying the series so far. For those of you who were able to watch last night, you've already seen part two. And if you're unable to watch the series, don't worry. I'll be breaking down part two next week. You're not going to miss a thing. Thank you everyone for listening. Stay safe, keep your distance, support your local restaurants with takeout if you can, and make sure you tune into parts three and four of the Forgotten West Memphis Three tonight on Oxygen. 8 Eastern, 7 Central. We'll talk to you guys next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is attributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. We also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.